Hello. Lovely to see you all again. I see some friendly faces from previous talks, so welcome, but also some new faces here as well. So really great, because we've got a very interesting topic. I think everyone here will agree um, to look at today. Um, I'm going to start, though, by a word of warning. <clears throat> this lecture is not for those who are delicate of hearing or squeamish of stomach, because today we're going to be talking about two sex organs, the clitoris and the penis, and along the way we will be talking about hands that masturbate, medical discourses that judge, and knives that cut. But we're also going to spend a lot of time talking about pleasure. Now people, and I'm sure people here in this room, have always enjoyed talking dirty. There are thousands of colloquial, oh, the smile of recognition there, there are thousands of colloquial expressions for our sex organs, and particular, in particular for the penis. Indeed, one survey of pet names for the genitals showed, found that 57% referred to the uh, penis, just over one-third to the vulva or vagina, 4% to the breasts, and only 1% to 2% each for clitoris, testicles, buttocks, and anus. Isn't that sad? It will come as no surprise to anyone here that men have significantly more slang terms for male and female genitalia than do women. The penis is referred to as the beast in man. It is the king of the jungle, the dragon, cobra, one-eyed trouser snake, hairy hound of hedoism. It is a tool, pole pipe, garden hose, crank, drill, jackhammer, hedge trimmer. Or it is, don't ask me, or it is a weapon, squirt, gun, love, pistol, sword, spear, chisel, jackhammer, pistol, pink torpedo, heat-seeking moisture missile, lightsaber, stealth bomber, helmet, and love warrior. The penis is food, popsicle, noodle, tube steak, or it is infanticized, infanticized by nonsense, nonsense idioms, dork, wanger, doodahs, dingaling. <coughs> now, one of the most common ways of talking about the penis is to personify it, willy, his Excellency, Hammer of the Gods, the Hulk, Mac the Knife, Dick Peter Johnson, which has led some researchers, this is serious, to suggest that this may be due to the fact, the idea that men in particular have, that the penis has a life of its own, separate in some way from its owner. Of course, words for the penis go in and out of fashion. In the, 18th, in the 18th century, the penis was the yard, or the quill, terms which are rare today. Now, today, 21st century, the most common words are, in descending order, dick, willy, cock, knob, prick. I think it's highly significant, though, that slang words for the clitoris are, in fact, rare. Indeed, Rogers Profanus Serius, 
1998, which is a swearing dictionary of 2,230 rude words and phrases, has only three for the clitoris. Bell, button, and fanny flang, which I have to admit I have never heard of. Perhaps because they are more endearing than words for the penis, the swearing dictionary does not include the name sweet pea, for example, or myrtleberry, the term used by uh, Ruffus um, Ephas, uh, in 1st and 2nd century AD. It is also does not include sweetness of Venus, which was what... Uh, Rinaldus Columbus, this man here, he was the Italian anatomist who claimed huh, to have discovered the clitoris in 1559, <laughs> called it. <coughs> Sweetness of Venus was what he called it. He maintained, this is 1559, he maintained that since no one has discerned these projections and their workings before, it therefore must be permissible to give names to things discovered by me. The clitoris, therefore, he said, should be called the love or sweetness of Venus. This 16th century anatomist fully understood the importance of the organ. He described the clitoris as the seat of women's delight, noting that when women are eager for sex and very excited, as if in a frenzy and aroused to lust, you will find it a little harder and oblong to such a degree that it shows itself a sort of male member. Now, describing the clitoris um, in terms of the penis has been a persistent error. Since both organs develop, since both organs develop from the same embryonic tissue, it is just as accurate to describe the penis as a version of the clitoris. But anatomists like Columbus, as well as philosophers, scientists, and physicians, have found it much easier to draw analogies from with the penis than to study the clitoris in its own right. In ancient times, these discussions have circled around the sort of penis-vagina, the Galenic model, versus the penis-clitoris, the Hippocratic one. Now, in the Galaic account, the vagina was an inverted or inside-out penis. In contrast, the Hippocratic account posited the clitoris as the female phallus. In both cases, in other words, women's genitalia are simply viewed as versions of male ones. This is what historian Thomas Lecoeur has controversially, I have to admit, dubbed the one-sex model of one sex model of sex. Even as late as the 1860s, we can hear physicians such as Edinburgh contraceptive, contraception proponent George Drysdale maintaining that <clears throat> the clitoris in the female is in reality the male penis. He believed that each individual is really a hermaphrodite and possesses both sets of organs. However, he added, man has the male organs fully developed and the female ones in a rudimentary, a rudimentary state and vice versa. Now, the Hippocratic model 
allowed for female pleasure, similar to that experienced by men. Unlike in the Galaic model, where the vagina is sort of this passive recipient for the penis, in the Hippocratic model, clitoral orgasm was necessary for conception. In a similar way that male ejaculation is necessary for conception. The link between female orgasm and conception was being questioned by the 13th century, even though we can still find examples of it being revived as late as the 19th century. Now, why is this important? This is important because, of course, it has real-life effects on real-life men and women, and particularly women's sexual lives. The Galaic version posited women as a lesser being. Their sexuality primarily served reproductive ends. If the Hippocratic version, with its emphasis on clitoral orgasm, seems like a better deal for women, um, it too, sadly, had a downside. What happened if a woman who was raped became pregnant. Her pregnancy was regarded as proof that she must have had an orgasm and therefore had enjoyed the act. This was the message propagated by Bartley, I'm not going to pronounce his first name, by Bartley in his very, very, very influential 1815 treatise um, on forensic medicine or medical jurisprudence. It's one of the early textbooks of this nature. In his deliberately sort of enigmatic um, prose, he contended that conception must depend on the exciting passion that predominates. To this effect, the ostrum veneris must be excited to such a degree as to produce um, that mutual orgasm, which is essentially necessary to impregnation. If any desponding or depressing, depressing passion presides, this will not be accomplished. In case readers, and indeed us, didn't grasp his point, Bartley drew a rather bizarre parallel with a man confined in a room being enveloped by flames. Eventually, the man escaped through a window. Note here, he's talking about sexuality here. Anyway, man escapes through a window of awful height from the ground. So. What, Bartley asked, was the predominating passion that enabled him to escape? It was not the impulse of fear, declared Bartley, because fear paralyzes. Rather, his energies were animated through the passion of hope. Equally, according to Bartley, if a woman becomes pregnant as the result of sexual assault, the conception was proof that she must have been under a cheering influence of an exciting passion. Now, the notion that a woman under the control of depressing passions, such as the terror of being raped, could not get pregnant was, of course, increasingly um, ridiculed. Although forensic textbooks still found it necessary to mention the belief until the end of the 19th century, if only to discredit it. In some circles, alas, alas, it can still be heard today. 
Only a few years ago, Republican Congressman Todd Aiken used the argument as part of his no exceptions policy on abortion. In other words, he said the body in rape has a way of shutting things down. So if a woman gets pregnant, it can't have been rape. Okay. Now, of course, the pleasurable sensations of clitoral stimulation were well known, at least to women, well before its discovery in the 16th century by Columbus. Indeed, as we'll... It is his name. <laughs> Indeed, as we'll hear late, later when we turn to male impotence, medieval and early modern commentators tended to view women as sexually voracious in their desires. In much later times, particularly in the period, I'm thinking here, of late 19th century to the 1950s, Physicians, in contrast, were much more worried about female frigidity than they were about their orgasmic um, capacities. Doctors were known to massage clitorises in order to make women more sexually receptive to their husbands' overtures. In the 1880s, English doctor Joseph Mortimer Granville even invented the wonderful vibrator in order to stimulate the clitorises of women he diagnosed with hysteria. As early as the 1830s, readers of ma marriage manuals were informed that the clitoris was the seat of venial pleasure. Writing in the Journal of Official Surgery, late 1880s, one doctor reported with awe, immense awe, that in proportion to its size and also being composed of erectile tissue, the clitoris is furnished with five times as many nerve endings as the penis. 1900, physician Byron Robinson even compared the clitoris to an electric bell and said it was the chief seat of sexual excitement. The problem, all of these doctors agreed, was this bell could ring when a woman masturbated or had intercourse with someone other than her husband. Now, the story here, this knowledge of you know, clitoris and the, the pleasure that clitorises bring, of course, is not to deny that there were counter discourses. The most notorious is this man here, William Acton. Um, who simultaneously believed that women were asexual beings, while also warning how dangerous it was for them to be masturbating. Other physicians performed clitorectomies, that is, female uh, circumcision, in the belief that an engorged or irritated clitoris was unhealthy because it led to masturbation, lesbianism, nymphomania. Rogue surgeons such as James Burt would perform such operations routinely without asking consent. Ten thousands of American women underwent such operations. However, in her book, 
Female Circumcision and Clitorectomy in the United States, A History of a Medical Treatment, came out in 2014. I really recommend it. Um, she argues, Sarah uh, Rodriguez, Rodriguez, pervasively argues that many early 20th century physicians or surgeons removed the clitoral hood in an attempt to enhance rather than reduce female sexual pleasure during heterosexual <coughs> penetrative sex. Um, between the 1940s and the 1960s, doctors also performed clitorectomies in the belief that it would enable women to experience the so-called vagina orgasm that was being promoted by some pro-Freudian um, psychologists and psychiatrists. She shows that the surgical modification of clitorises in America included four very distinctive types of operations. Complete removal, excision of the clitoral hood, separation of adhesions between the clitoris and the clitoral hood, and the removal of accumulated smera behind, behind, beneath the hood. As late as 1976, the authors of The Consumer's Guide to Successful Surgery argued that up to 10% of women would find relief in female circumcision. Even some feminists in the 1960s and 1970s endorsed surgery to liberate the liberating organ. It was the ultimate way to steer female sexuality towards the socially approved heteronormative missionary position with their husbands. Now, today, female circumcision is looked upon as a human or women's rights issue um, by those who call it genital mutilation or FGM or one of cultural practices by those who call it circumcision. According to the World Health Organization, 200 million girls and women today in 30 countries, largely in Africa, Middle East and Asia, have been cut. British girls, of course, continue to be circumcised while on holiday in these countries. And an unknown number of circumcisions are still carried out in Britain, British and American hospitals today on intersex infants. Furthermore, there continues to be a surprising lack of knowledge about the clitoris. As late as the 1970s, medical texts ignored it altogether. And some textbooks continue to depict the clitoris as a sort of diminutive penis or a small external nub next to the really important organs, which of course, no surprise here, are the reproductive ones. Female feminist philosopher Nancy Tuana has a good phrase for this, and I love this phrase. She calls it the epistemology of ignorance the epistemology of ignorance. I tell you, you want to impress people over a dinner party, the epistemology of ignorance is the one. In her words, ignorance is not a simple lack. It is often constructed, maintained, and disseminated 
and is linked to issues of cognitive authority, doubt, trust, silencing, and uncertainty. The epistemology of ignorance surrounding the clitoris, she argues, is supported by two political dogmas. First, reproduction. That's what matters. Second, pleasure is secondary. Well into the 19th century, women were believed to be particularly lustful creatures. It was, in other words, best not to pay attention to the clitoris, lest we stir up a hornet's nest of stinging desire. Now, these views were really only challenged um, when feminists in the 1970s decided that women were getting a raw deal in the bedroom, as well, of course, as the boardroom. They held speculum parties in which they saw their cervix <laughs> for the first time. They gloated over the fact that the glands of the clitoris contains 8,000 nerve fibers, twice that of the penis. Influential texts such as Our Body, Ourselves not only emphasize the glories of the clitoris, but also of the urethral sponge, which is between the front wall of the vagina and the urethral, and is popularly known as the G-spot, after its male discoverer, Ernst Graffenberg. They also emphasize the perennial sponge, which is between the vagina and the rectum. Now, perhaps they suggested resistance to patriarchal power could be achieved through clitoral pleasure. This feminist revolution could not usurp the power of the prick. Even today, sadly, young people know a great deal more about the penis than they do about the clitoris. In the words of David M. Friedman in, again, a wonderful book, A Mind of Its Own. Remember, they personify it? A Mind of Its Own, the cultu A Cultural History of the Penis. Um, he said that organ has been defied, deified, demonized, secularized, racialized, psychoanalyzed, politicized, and finally medicalized. Although society seems to be obsessed with the penis, most people actually really, this may surprise me, most people actually know relatively little about normal penises. Is it any wonder, since differences in size, tilt, and hardness are often difficult to judge by sideway glances in urinals by heterosexual men, or discreet scans on the beach by women. The penis continues to be measured in inches long after most of the world has turned metric. <laughs> uh, both high art and low, low pornography are, of course, deceptive. They nearly always show penises with a shaft, when in reality, most penises, many penises, actually show little or even no shaft when not erect. Such penises, of course, are known as growers, as opposed to showers. Penis expert Peter Lehman observes that the flaccid penis without a shaft is culturally invisible. He notes that people can Look through entire books on the history of the representation of the male nude in photography. 
and never actually see one. Walk through countless art museums without seeing one. Look at countless medical texts and sexology books without seeing one. Watch frontal male nudity in countless movie scenes without seeing one. Lehman asks a good question. Why have penises that showed little or no shaft before erection been so rigorously excluded from representation? It all comes down to ideology. The male penis, whether flaccid or erect, is always, or has to be always, a prominent organ. If it were otherwise, it may as well be a clitoris. Now, unlike the total silence about what an aesthetically beautiful clitoris looks like, the penis is all about aesthetics. What constitutes a beautiful penis has changed over time. And those of you who've come to all of my lectures know that that's basically my mantra. It's changed over time. <laughs> um, okay, take um, the prepuss, the foreskin, for example. It has impressive qualities. Indeed, in youth, the prepuss is often more than three quarters the entire length of the penis. In ancient Greek times, the ideal penis possessed a long prepuss. Men with deficient prepuses, either through birth or as a result of surgery, were pathologized. There was even believed, it was even believed to be called by a, caused by a very devastating disease called lipodermis. This ideal is clearly seen in Greek vase paintings. Uh, think, for example, uh, this one, the attic vase painting of Achilles binding the arm of Patroclus an incredibly long uh, prepus that can be seen draped across his foot. That's how long it is. The eradication of the prepus was confined to Jewish and Muslim cultures in the 18th century and only became a common medical procedure amongst other groups in Europe and America um, from the late 19th century. Suddenly, a long prepus came to be seen as aesthetically unattractive dangerous, serving no positive function. Non-ritualistic circumcision became popular between the 1860s and the 1930s. And why? Well, largely, it became popular due to anxieties about the propensity of boys and men to touch and stroke their penises. By removing the foreskin, the penis was made less sensitive and cleaner pure in body and soul, in other words. There were also suggestions at the time um, that circumcision reduced men's risk of syphilis. As Jonathan Hutkinson, surgeon at the Metropolitan Free Hospital in the 1850s argued, the lower rate of syphilis amongst Jewish men was not due to their superior chastity, but rather to circumcision. And this was only disputed by in, from the 1930s. Now, while the clitoris was understood to be the locus of lesbianism and nymphomania, these so-called pathologies were never thought to be as widespread as pathologies associated with the penis. 19th century Britain and America, masculine anxieties were provoked 
by the spread of a new and invidious disease called spermatorrhea, or the excessive, involuntary discharge of semen. It was, they believed, a disease of civilization, disproportionately plaguing office workers or urban professionals while sparing the blushes of rural laborers and working men. Crucially, although women might serve as temptresses, spermatorrhea was fundamentally the fault of men themselves who engaged in self-pollution that is, masturbation. The loss of semen was serious. It was considered a vital fluid. It was considered a refined form of blood, in fact. So any seeping away, either voluntarily through masturbation or involuntarily through spermatorrhea, was extremely debilitating. According to this very important theory of the time called nerve force theory, um, irritation in one part of the body affected all the other organs, even those at a distance from the original um, irritation. As a consequence, masturbation or friction caused by the foreskin rubbing against the gland's penis could cause nerve impulses that affected the brain. As the Swiss physician Samuel August Tussaud explained in his influential Oneism or a treatise on the diseases produced by masturbation, 1758, sexual res restraint, even within marriage, was important because male orgasm damaged nerves and brains. Semen was also necessary for the retention of masculine traits. Losing semen led to exhaustion, constipation, depression, nerves, epilepsy, flabbiness, impotence. As an anonymous Victorian gentleman calling himself Walter recalled in his memoir, My, Sex, Sec My Secret Life, he was warned at one stage that you look ill. You've been frigging yourself. I can see it in your face. You'll die in a madhouse or of consumption. TB. The voluntary or involuntary um, loss of semen made men weak and weepy, like women, in fact. So, what could anxious sufferers do? Although some physicians informed masturbators that they should engage in outdoor uh, exercise, gymnastics, um, or cold baths, others recommended chastity belts, circumcision, cutting the main nerve in the penis, and infibulation. That is, a ring would be inserted through the foreskin to keep it from sliding back. Cures for spermatoria could also be similarly distressing. Men were bled, given laxatives, had their anuses dilated, leeches were attached to intimate parts of their bodies. Their penises were circumcised, blistered, cauterized. Penises were caged, and this is what this is, were caged in rings containing sharp teeth. There was a second, albeit rarer, 
disease of men's sexual organs. Cetyriasis, or the male equivalent of nymphomania in women. Now this disease, um, named of course after the Greek satire, half man, half beast, it had been identified as early as the first century AD, but the concern, more panic about it, peaked in Victorian times, with fears about modern man's lack of willpower. Rather than the seeping away of semen through masturbation or spermatorium, Ceteritis was caused by seminal blockages, which led to genital irritation or erotic delirium. In other words, sufferers were constantly aroused and could think of nothing except their insatiable sexual urges. Their erotic fervor, French forensic physician Augustine Taudieu contended, puts every woman at risk. And Jack the Ripper was assumed to be a sufferer, as were numerous other perverted degenerates, as, degenerates, as diagnosed by forensic physicians such as uh, Richard von Krapp-Ebbing. William Acton, who we heard about earlier, explained that ceteritis, that in this, erections may not only morbidly, may not only morbidly be frequent and persistent, but connected with a maniacal sensuality that is one of the most awful visitations to which humanity can be subject. He described one young man who exhibited the hideous symptoms. The patient was young and in good circumstances, but was habitually untidy about his head and hair, which is light-colored brown. His face was red, the cheeks and nose especially. His eyes were hollow and he had a haggard expression. The lips were thick and sensuous, the mouth wide. He was short and thick-set and had a full habit of body. I never saw a case in which the animal was so markedly prominent. I learned that early in life he had masturbated himself but had left off the practice only to commit excesses with women of a nature and extent that were shocking to hear of. And for those of you who've come to previous lectures of mine, I hope you can sort of remember back on, you know, the physiognomy discussions that we've had about how you can read a person's character through the face and, and body. He went on saying, the young man's excessive indulgence was caused by a lesion of the nervous system, especially irritation of the cerebellum as well as some mysterious brain lesion. Acton diagnosed a low animal organization with a strong hereditary disposition to lust, concluding that the patient was almost out of the category of rational or moral agents. In short, he was in a condition in which there seems indeed little hope of restoration. Okay, although ceteritis was a kind of um, exaggerated masculine desire, some doctors actually believed it contained a germ of femininity. Kraft Ebbing, for example, claimed that it could often be found in men who lead lives similar to those of women, adorned with the same habits 
and impacted by the same troubles that are so often observed in them. It was, and no surprise here, also a raced disease, afflicting primitive people and what the racist French psychiatrist Louise Gostal Bouchereau called inferior races and beings, including those who obey only their senses and are preoccupied solely with satisfying their hunger. The question was for these commentators, well, why would this primitive pathology appear in modern societies. Atavism, or degeneration to a more primitive life form, was the answer. A corrupt and debased hereditary was therefore assumed. Now, if the first two panics involved excessive discharge of semen and seminal blockages, the third panic involved insufficient flows. The medical literature on impotence can be traced back to ancient times. In Greece, for example, male impotence threatened the very basis of life. The penis was an object of cult worship, and frequent sexual performance was regarded as as fundamental as eating. Impotent men were advised to avoid witches. They were advised to avoid insatiable women who sought to drain them of their powers. They were also encouraged to eat penis-shaped vegetables. Um, the seriousness of impotence declined with the introduction of Christianity. Augustine called um, the penis, of course, the demon rod. Um, so the introduction of, uh, of Christianity, decline in the concern about impotence, and the valorization of abstinence. By the 17th century, conjugal rights and duties in the marital bed were regarded as so important that um, marriages could be dissolved on the grounds that the husband could not engage in congress with his wife. And trials of congress took place during which an accused husband was publicly stimulated into having an erection to determine if intercourse could actually have been achieved. Within a century, religious and moral discourses had been replaced by physiological and psychological explanations for impotence. Victorian doctors took this a lot further linking the problem of impotence to newly evolved ideas about the nervous system. 20th century commentators converted male impotence into a psychological woe. Medical texts that had included problems of impotence in chapters or sections dealing with infertility were suddenly transferred to parts of their textbook dealing with psychological problems. Um, the problem of impotence was therefore transformed into a problem of pleasure, both for the man as well as his assumed female partner. Feminists replaced witches as the chief threats to the glories of the engorged semen-heavy penis. 
its medicalization at the end of the 20th century with physicians diagnosing erectile dysfunction and prescribing Viagra completed the circle towards penis worship. It's no surprise that penile anxieties were regarded by those seeking to make a quick buck as a lucrative business proposition. A vast array of products with alluring names such as aromatic lozenges of steel. I love that one. Um, and Alexa of life were marketed to men seeking to augment penile performance. The association of Mormons with, um, with polyg polygamy um, encouraged um, aphrodisiacs called things like, these are very popular aphrodisiacs, called Mormon Bishop's Pills and Brigham Young Tablets, named after Brigham Young, the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who founded uh, Salt Lake City. Ingenious devices were promoted that promised to strengthen or lengthen penises. Other men went much further. Size matters, oh, so they believe. These men were willing to undergo a general anaesthetic to have their penises enlarged, or, to put it accurately, to um, have their penises seem larger. Three main types of procedures. In one, the surgeon, oh, this is horrible, the surgeon cuts the ligament that attaches the penis to the torso. Now, this does not, in fact, enlarge the penis, but it does make it appear larger because the penis sticks out further from the body. Dermal fat grafting involves sewing strips of fat under the skin of the penis. Fat transfer operations are similar, except that the fat is injected. In both cases, the fat will eventually dissolve into the rest of the body. A survey in 2008 published in European Urology found that most men who had these procedures had absolutely normal penises. Yet, all three operations had side effects. The penis might be knobbly, the angle of the erection may be lower, and there are risks of reduced sensitivity, scarring, and impotence. But we cannot end on a sad note. Clearly, there is this difference between the penis and the phallus, or the material and the symbolic. However, the jury is still out about whether the penis haunts the phallus or the phallus haunts the penis. Despite all the attention it has received, the male organ continues to drool, dribble, loll, and sag. It is far from the phallic ideal as is possible. Now, the clitoris it doesn't seem to have attracted as much attention as it certainly deserves. Although the recent opening of the Vagina Museum in Camden, London, may change things for the better. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, despite second and third wave feminism and recent anatomical discoveries about the size and sensitivity of the clitoris, that organ continues to be repressed and underestimated. Female sexual pleasure has taken second place to the male variety. 
How else can we explain the fact that heteronormative sex is described as penetration or penis entering vagina rather than vagina engulfing or vagina embracing the penis? How else can we explain the fact that what happens before the main act is merely foreplay? When it comes to the penis, I'm afraid we must accept the fact that we cannot reach firm conclusions. When it comes to the clitoris, however, we can all be swept away on tides of pleasure. Thank you. Um, and before we take discussion, I just want to make a little announcement, if that's okay. You know, the last few times I've spoken here, we've talked about breasts and clitorises and penises. And um, so my next lecture may seem that it's going to be a letdown because I'm going to be talking about stomachs. <laughs> um, 19th of March, 6 p.m. But remember, stomachs are interesting. Stomachs used to be regarded as more important to the person than hearts. I'm going to tell you about stomachology, what diet does to personality. Not all stomachs are equal. Stomachs have a history, too. And what truth there is in the saying, you are what you eat. So please come, 19th of March. Thank you very much.